Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Andrew Lee, the uh, chair of today's session on Terminator or Star Trek Shaping the Future of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, today's conversation at uh, South by Southwest Sydney is going to be focused on the possible scenarios for AI. Uh, is AI going to take us into a dystopian Terminator style scenario uh, in which uh, everything is, uh, is misaligned and there's widespread harm to humanity? Or is it going to be like Star Trek, a utopian future? We might uh, end up on one of those extremes, we might settle on a sort of Blade Runner scenario in the middle, a sort of stable yet somewhat dysfunctional society. I'm pretty passionate about uh, artificial intelligence, as are our three panellists who I'll introduce in a moment. I'm, as a member of the government, interested in what, kind of, what artificial intelligence might do to boost productivity, but also the dangers it might have. Uh, this is a technology where 5% of those working on it say that it could spell the end of humanity. And I don't know another technology that does that. But this is also a technology which has remarkable productive potential. Ethan Mollick and co-authors did a study with BCG consultants, about 700 of them, last month. And they, took, they gave, uh, asked them to do an artificial task working with a shoe manufacturer in which they had to come up with a strategic plan, marketing documents, and an internal memo. Half were given access to ChatGPT4 at the start, and half weren't. At the end of the, uh, the mock exercise, those who used ChatGPT produced material 25% faster. That was, according to the raters, 40% better. I know of no other technology, not just now, but in human history, that can give a 25 to 40% bump with no learning curve whatsoever. So the potential for AI is remarkable. There's also a potential for consolidation, much as internet search involved dozens of firms in the late 90s and just one firm now, there's the chance that AI might consolidate. We have on the panel uh, three fantastic experts in AI. Uh, Rodolfo Ocampo, who's formerly of Google, uh, now and has then gone on to work with uh, a cybernetics team at ANU uh, and now doing his PhD at UNSW with Toby Walsh and others. We have Theresa Anderson from Connecting Stones, uh, an expert in AI who served on New South Wales government panels uh, and who thinks hard about the ethics of data use. We have Tracy Spicer, whose book Man Made came out this year. Uh, and who has thought deeply about the ethics of AI, the ways in which we can use it, uh, and the ways in which it might uh, reproduce prejudices that exist in society. We're going to talk about some of these dark aspects first, but I thought it might be fun to start with some of the lighter aspects. Ways in which the panel have used AI uh, to have fun. Uh, and uh, Al, I thought maybe you might at this point put up the uh, picture that we had before, my 11-year-old son, Zachary, and I have been using ChatGPT to do art. And he's decided, uh, as a Spider-Man fan, that the next Spider-Man character should be Redback. Uh, Redback will be the Aussie Spider-Man. He's going to pitch it, because Spider-Man's gone multinational, he's going to pitch it uh, as a way of getting the Spider-Man movies to Australia. So this is Ch uh, Dali's uh, version of Redback. 
nice uh, sort of red back logo, good uh, Australian location. Uh, pity that the left hand has six fingers, but you know. That's <laughs> uh, so let me now throw over to the panel. We can uh, we can drop red back from the screen. Uh, thanks, Al. Uh, throw over to the panel. Uh, uh, let's uh, take it in turns to uh, to talk about your favourite use of AI. Starting Rodolfo. Great. Well, you're not going to believe this, but actually, I remember the very first time I used Google when I was like, I don't know, seven years old. And I Googled the Spider-Man images. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe that you could just Google something and then just have infinite yes. images. And I think it was a very similar feeling when like playing with Dali and like these image models. The same sense of wonder that's just magic. And to be honest, uh, you know, we might get very critical in this panel uh, and, and, and we have to. But I got into AI just playing with it. I was just like, this is so fun. I remember like after, uh, you know, work, like working nine to five at Google, I would come home, I was doing like ads, data stuff, you know, applying AI in very boring ways. But I just wanted to use it for art and making fun stuff. So I was just like coming home and hacking some things, some ideas that I had. I found out about this masters at ANU. And uh, they, one of the things they have to do is write an essay about why you wanted to come to Australia to do this PhD, this uh, master's in AI. And uh, I thought very hard about like what to write in this essay. And then one day I had an idea, it's like, what if I write it with AI as well? You know, it was GPT-2 back then. So that was uh, tw uh, 2019. So you had to download the code in your computer. It was a, you know, a headache. Then eventually I made this little coding, which you can like, it was really hard back then, like kids don't know, don't, don't, don't know how good they have it these days. But you have to like create this code and then like I wrote the first paragraph, created the next paragraph with the AI and then it took it to a different direction that I was not expecting to go. So it amplified my creativity in that way and the essay ended up being weird, but also interesting. It was proposing language as a technology itself. That was kind of like the idea of the essay and then how AI was going to change that. So anyway, that's how I got to Australia. They loved that. Obviously, I disclosed that it was AI sending the code, like if you want to replicate it. And since then, I've just been playing with AI. And if we, we, recently, we just did an installation for the Opera House in which uh, we turned the data of the building in real time into a soundscape oh. using GPT-4. So we were consuming all the data, temperature, how many people were in the building, CO2 levels in the building, all of that going live into GPT-4. And then GPT-4 had access to this music engine, this generative music engine, and was selecting what it was gonna play. So it was turning the data of the building into a real-time soundscape. So that was really fun, and that was a way to celebrate the Opera House and the hidden systems of the building that nobody knows about. Um, currently doing an app for teachers. So I know you are very interested as well in, in education and AI, so an app for teachers so they can create adaptive English activities for kids that give immediate feedback to them and then gives the teacher data about the performance and it just makes the, 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 the um, experience fun and infinite, pretty much. So I ultimately, I'm very excited about the cool things that you can do with AI, but you know, as all of us here also concerned about the potential misuses and risks uh, of this technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to add one to, to what we talked about just because what you've reminded me of is a, a student of mine once hooked a series of raspberry pies to the trees in his garden and then because he had done sound in his undergrad he ended up making music from the trees so he could say he was talking to his trees and you know that's again one of those playful cool experiences. So. Uh, the most recent example that I have from my own experience is I'm part of a group of policy advocates 
working with the ACS, the Australian Computer Society, and we put out a book earlier this year, uh, Data and the Digital Self, and we decided because we're talking about data and digital, we would involve some AI in it. So the cool part was that every single chapter started with a haiku that was written by the AI based on the content of our chapters. And my chapter talks about building trust cultures and the haiku that the machine came up with was, careful winter time, a little green frog jumps on, trusting in the stone. Now the stone I can get, because I'm connecting stones, I can assure you my chapter doesn't talk about little green frogs jumping, so I'm not quite sure where that is. But it, it, it was quite delightful and playful, and um, all through the book that was good. Now, the cool part, that was the haikus. The creepy part was we let the machine come up with the front cover. And I have to say, every time I look at it, it freaks me out. So, um, but, you know, that's, that's what happens. You know, you've got to trust in that process. Love it. Tracy. Well, my example is highly illegal. So please don't tell anyone outside this room. Who's done voice cloning? Oh my goodness, I spent the entire week last week going right down the rabbit hole of 11.ai, which is free. It was my best friend's 60th birthday and he's very, very funny, I'm not very funny. So I thought, what if I put some messages in the voice of JFK, <laughs> Joe Biden and Donald Trump? And yes, it got a lot of laughs. It was a fascinating insight though into what does work with voice cloning and what doesn't work. If you have an Australian accent, the technology finds it very difficult. I spent the entire day and a half trying to get Paul Keating's accent right, and it did not do that, unfortunately. The reason why it's illegal is because, gosh, if that was legal, we could clone any of our voices and make us say anything similar to deepfake technology. The other AI I've been playing with for fun lately is Midjourney. How many of you use Midjourney? Probably most of you or Stable Diffusion or Dali, like you did with that wonderful redback Spider-Man. We used it to create the cover of my book, which was a suggestion by the graphic designer because he wanted to start a conversation about what was happening in his industry. I wanted an image of a strong robot woman looking to the future with concern but hope. The image it came up with was of a highly sexualised gold <laughs> robot woman with a tiny waist and massive breasts. <laughs> so that taught me that, yes, it's fun to play with these technologies, but by golly, it's an insight into the biases within them. So thinking about the uh, biases within them, obviously the strength of uh, large language models and the like is in the data that they've, uh, they've created or that they're trained on. And uh, Teresa, you've thought very hard about data ethics and uh, uh, around data ownership and the notion of data publics. Uh, how do you regard the use of data and, and how, should, how should we think about this in the future? I'm so excited that we started with this because so often the conversations about AI focus on the tool and I feel like this is an opportunity for a Jerry Seinfeld quote, not that there's anything wrong with that, because the, the tools can be amazing. Um, and I need to say that all the time when I'm speaking as an ethicist, I'm not against them, but I'm very concerned that we lose sight of the fact that they are fed by data. And that data is absolutely critical. The other thing that is really important is that that data is a, a representation that will never fully encompass life. I do not feel that there's any place on the planet where data adequately represents me or my family, uh, nor do I think data represents the planet. That's not, again, to say that we don't use it, but it's about training people, and this is the idea, which is why I love your work, raising, raising awareness in the community to create informed data publics who then feel confident and capable 
not becoming data scientists themselves, but informed data citizens to be able to say, you know what, that representation of my data in Centrelink, for instance, or that representation of me um, in this, this customer journey that you have put together um, as, as part of, um, I don't know, my credit card or as, as part of this club that I'm a part of. Yes, that tells part of my story, but that is not my full story. Then there also needs to be the opportunity to choose how much of yourself to represent and where to represent that. Um, so, so those are um, activities that require us to be actively engaging in raising awareness amongst the community and giving permission to challenging and questioning this data. Again, not because we're not going to use them, but, but like you said, but you need to be able to have that opportunity to have it come back to you so that you can then question it. The other thing that I have been playing with, and I'm, I'm gonna road test some ideas here, uh, are that in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is data exhaust. We're talking about data traces. And in the same way that if we think about a metaphor, when I watch planes in the sky, uh, you can look at the contrails or ships on sea. Mm. You can see where they've been. And you can see where they've been a long time afterwards, particularly if you're looking from satellite, you can see ship routes. You can see airline paths. And so with that information, I know people who are working to track planes and to track ships because they use that data as a map of the pathway. So that does give you an accurate positioning and it gives you a sense of movement and you can start to build up amazing, rich data sets about the patterns that are, that are happening. What you won't know are the stories of the people in that plane, the lives, what is it that brought them there, where are they going, what are their hopes, what are their dreams. Similarly on the ship, you might be able to find the manifest. On the plane, you can find the manifest of the passengers. But that rich context that makes us human and that gives us lives, that's not there. And then the final thing, and then I'll shut up because I do get passionate on this, is that data is named and created based on what we know. And yet what we're talking about is moving into a future that is unknown. So as we move into that future, our understanding and our knowledge and our languaging and our awareness changes. So you know, we've talked a little bit about gender. If we, if we went with categories and labels as they were created in the 1950s, you know, we, we'd be working with very primitive data sets. So we have to be aware of the fact that, that we're talking about evolving sets and moving sets and really, I think of it as living data. Mm. Wonderful. Now, Tracy, your book is the best Australian articulation of the risks uh, that AI imposes of uh, replicating biases. And it starts with this wonderful story of your 11-year-old son, Taj, saying, Mum, can I have a robot slave? Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of bias in the context of AI? And, and I'm particularly fascinated uh, uh, on the question as to whether uh, we should take our uh, online devices, our Alexas and Siri's, and change their gender. Oh, thank you for your kind words and thought-provoking question. I am a humble journalist, not a technologist nor an academic. But when my son, seven years ago at the age of 11, turned around and said, Mum, I want a robot slave, it was a light bulb moment. My husband and I are appalling parents because we wanted a sleeping in the morning, we'd allowed him to watch the adult cartoon South Park. And on one of the episodes, Cartman was ordering around his Amazon Alexa like he was some kind of colonial master. 
And as a lifelong feminist and journalist, I realise that that idea about women and girls being servile in the home and men being masters in the workplace, articulated by the Mad Men series set in the 1950s, was being built into the technology that is running our futures and really will deepen stereotypes from the 1950s for the next generation and the generation after that. So I interviewed a lot of experts and they said that this was deliberate in the same way that in Target or Big W, there used to be an aisle of pink toys for girls and blue toys for boys. That when you cement that gender stereotyping, it sells more units because people are comfortable with the stereotyping of the past on the whole, historically. And that really, really concerned me. With regards to changing the voices, that's a really interesting question, Andrew, and thank you for asking it. I often say, as was suggested by the wonderful book Smart Wives, written by Yolanda Strengers and Jenny Kennedy several years ago, two wonderful academics, we should change the voices in our homes to male, to flip the stereotype on its head, which is basically creating intentional bias to reduce the unconscious bias of the past and change the male voices of the chatbots in the business and finance sector to female voices to break down the stereotypes. Because we know from neuroscience that the more we're exposed to stereotypes, the more we're likely to adopt them. It's almost like we're surrounded by the sea of misogyny and bigotry. But one interesting point is in the car, and we talked about this earlier, that we often have the female voice in the car, but that's kind of authoritative and directing and shows leadership. So I'm pretty cool about leaving the female voice in the car. <laughs> Rodolfo, as we move through this, so a lot of our social norms are perhaps sitting a little behind the technology. And, and you've written about uh, technologist Stuart Brand's notion of layers and how sometimes the technology layer can outpace the, the social norms layer or the, the regulatory layer. Do you want to talk a little bit about that metaphor and how it might help us understand what's going on? Sure, yeah, so the base layer is a model created by Stuart Brand, who was the creator of the Holler catalog, um, really fascinating guy. And he proposes that civilization moves in layers of pace, so nature is the slowest one. Then you have things like culture that moves at a faster pace, but still slow. It takes time to change culture with a capital C. Then you have infrastructure, and then you go up to technology and fashion and all that stuff that changes very fast. Uh, obviously, they're all mutually influenced. So you have technology now that is changing extremely fast and it's changing things at the level of nature, at the level of culture, but at the level of governance, which is one of the layers, we don't move that fast. So um, recently there was this letter asking for a pause on AI and a lot of people thought it was futile and what's the point? And I signed it anyways. Uh, but I think because it's, it's important to have the conversation that we can actually control the pace of technology. We don't have to say, as Silicon Valley likes to put it, it's like, you know, just let it loose. You know, it's like move fast and break things. We have the ownership of the pace and I think we do need to adapt um, our systems, our governance systems to be able to keep up with technology. And at some point we will need some, some pauses. So it's not crazy to ask, say, OpenAI, which is the leader in, in, in AI at the moment, to not train GPT-5. And uh, I mean, it's, uh, might be just kind of like part of the show, but they are, seem to be compliant. They seem to be like Sam Alman was doing a tour around the world and he was saying like, regulate us. 
I mean, whether he's going to accept the regulation or not, but uh, they seem to understand because these guys, you know, they are out there. So they seem to understand that there's an existential risk as well. And then we can get into that, but there's like really good case to be made that there's like an existential risk of AI and like how we could get there. And these guys are, are, are well aware of that. So I think that's in the long term, but in the long, in, in the short term, there's other dangers about, you know, in terms of bias, in terms of displacement, economic displacement. So what you talk about in your book, so like the economic displacement, the increasing of inequality by automation is for me the biggest problem rather than the existential threat is we're going to displace workers. That's, that's you know, going to happen. Uh, that's always happened with, with automation, but it's going to happen faster. So people are going to be able to adapt less. They, they're not going to have as much time. So uh, people are going to lose jobs and, and, and inequality is going to increase because people who own the robots, the automation, are going to have more income. So I think we do need to consider these different paces of change and understand that governance is gonna move slower. So technology might need to, you know, have some breaks there that we actually do have control over now. Yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised when Sam Altman said to regulate us. But uh, my friend Joshua Gans, who works in AI at the University of Toronto, says this isn't surprising at all. He said when you're the market leader and regulation has a big fixed cost, you will often want regulation in order to keep out people who are snapping at your heels. So Joshua highlights this real challenge for governments and policymakers that if you over-regulate, you might lock in a monopoly as well as perhaps curtailing some of the problematic behaviours you're concerned about. Teresa, are there particular uh, challenges that, that trouble you in the data space? And are, you, uh, are there uh, solutions that you believe we ought to be, be proposing? Do you think we should own our data, for example? Well, so, I mean, that's one way to go. There, mm. there is complexity there because, um, and challenges with that, because I'm not sure, for instance, and I feel I'm fairly comfortable with understanding and interpreting my data, whether I want to have the responsibility for having all of it. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I have mixed feelings, but I do want to have agency over how it's used. And that's, again, where I feel it's important to be able to help people to recognize that they can ask questions and challenge. And, and then it's also contextual because it depends where it is. So I talk a lot about trust cultures that are necessary if we're going to move forward into a space where we are represented in some way, shape or form with our data. So that when, when I'm operating, say, in a civil society like Australia, I'm less inclined to be suspicious in certain contexts. So for instance, when I was a university student or when I was an educator, I knew that that institution had some, some high-level data protections in place. At the same time, I recognize that there are universities that have been hacked, there are companies that supposedly have good regimes in place that, that are hacked, so we can't outsource all that activity to other people or to machines. So increasingly, I'm starting to think about this whole notion of outsourcing activity mm. and how in this space, as we move towards situations where automation is coming into play and where we have the opportunity to use machines and data in, in powerful ways to make us productive, but also to free us up to do other things. I, I, I love that of our Bush's quote about you know, so letting, imagining a world, so this was this 1945 essay, as, as we may think, where he imagined a world where machines were able to do what they did best and humans could do what humans do best. And I think so often computational machines that are working with um, verifiable and authenticated data in whatever, and that's contextual, 
When they're working with that and they're working well, I'd much rather that that machine be doing the calculations than a human. And I have direct experience with that when I, my first job, I was a Sovietologist and my, my first role involved every day during the, Afghani the Afghanistan, um, in whatever it, it was called at the time, I'm trying to think in English, um, when the Soviets were in Afghanistan. Mm. So I was reading every single Soviet um, document that we could get our hands on to try to understand what was happening and so I had to write a report at the end of the day. Bloody tedious, incredibly tedious work. I was replaced by machine learning fairly quickly when it was able to, to take that work. And I'm not unhappy about that because it freed me up to do other things. But what it also showed very early on, and this was in the, the mid-80s, 1980s, well, that makes me so old when you suddenly say it that way, um, what it did not have, that machine learning technology did not have the understanding of Russian literature that I had, did not have the understanding of the plight of the, the workers in Russia, did not have an understanding that I had from personal experience. My parents were refugees from Central Europe. Mm -hmm. Their country disappeared at the end of World War II. And that all is what I took into my analysis. That's an important human activity. Now, I was freed up to be able to do that because of that tool. But as, as you were saying, we're talking, you know, it was much, times were much slower then. Now we're talking about these tools being every place and trying to keep up. And so an information philosopher colleague of mine 10 years ago wrote about the, the idea that we are, as humans, losing the time to think at the very moment we have these amazing complex tools before us. And that was, he wrote that in 2007, and look at us now. So we really, as humans, need to be working on our skill set. Tracy, what does utopia or better look like <laughs> in, this, uh, in this context? How do you envisage that we might effectively use the tools of AI not just to fail to replicate biases, but actually to, to build a better society. Utopia starts with inclusive design. And I love the work of Dr Manisha Amin from the Centre for Inclusive Design here in Sydney. She uses the analogy of Braille. Prior to the advent of Braille, sighted people tried to create innovations and none of them worked, of course. But then it took someone with a sight impairment to create one of the greatest innovations of our lifetime. So if we get a diverse cohort involved in every innovation, we will avoid situations like the racist soap dispenser that some of you will know of, it went viral on Twitter. A Nigerian tech worker tried to use a soap dispenser in a Marriott hotel, and because it used light sensor AI technology, it did not work for his hands, but it worked for his white colleague's hands and it worked for a white piece of paper. And that was because the small group of young white men in Silicon Valley had only tested it on themselves and their homogenised group. So the innovations have to have inclusivity from the get-go rather than trying to add it in on the end. I mean, I'm a big fan of, of uh, audits for bias of both algorithms and data sets. There's wonderful legislation in place in New York that if you use a hiring algorithm, you must audit it every year because it might not have bias at the get-go or not a lot of bias, but then it will develop bias through machine learning in the next year and the following year. Now that has problems. It only audits for gender and race. It doesn't audit for age or ability or sexuality or any of those kind of multifaceted intersectional types of issues. 
but it's a start. The fine is like being slapped with a wet lettuce leaf. I think it's uh, $2,500, but it's a very good start. I, in my book, I have a chapter on utopia and on dystopia, but I've started to think about it in a different way, actually, in the last couple of months. Who has read much of protopian theory? Oh, I love it, I love it, I love it. The, the term was coined by Kevin Kelly, who was the founding editor of Wired magazine. And he comes at it from this middle ground where we need to work with technology, mastering it in a very slow, incremental way to create the kind of future that we want. Because when you think about it, there's no such thing as utopia. We would like to think that we develop robots to do the work that we don't want to do. But think of those ethical conundrums. If those robots become sentient, yes, they can take us over. But also, is this creating a slave underclass? What kind of rights do they have? What kind of legal rights do they have in the future? It creates a huge conundrum. So I like to think of it in terms of a protopian future. And for anyone that likes the idea of protopia, I can recommend uh, Eli Berman's new book, Gradual, which argues that pretty much every positive social change in history hasn't come about through Big Bang Revolution, but about through steady evolution, such as social security, superannuation and the like. Uh, Rodolfo, uh, I'm curious about how you think about what, uh, what break looks like in this, uh, in this context. Given that you're supportive of an AI pause, how do you see that unfurling? Presumably you'd like the technology to advance, but you want it to advance in the right way. How does that look? Yeah, so two concepts specifically. One of them is collective participation, as Tracy mentioned. And I'm just going to give an example uh, that I think is very pertinent right now. I was doing a workshop for people in the creative industries, working in film specifically, working in immersive film. And there was this team, it was an original man and a, and a, and a white man, they were, they'd been working together for 20 years. They had this idea for this film in which there was an Aboriginal Prime Minister in Australia. And they wanted to create sort of like a pitch deck to, to get funding for the film. And they, you know, they said, let's use Midjourney to create the image and then this other software uh, to animate it. So we were working with the softwares and we tried to create an image of an Aboriginal Prime Minister in Australia with an Aboriginal flag in the background and the, the model wasn't able to do it. Just didn't know what an Australian Aboriginal flag was. And it, then we tried with a US flag, with a British flag, you know, and it was flawless. So um, I, that just made me think, like, what, what would a voice, uh, an Aboriginal voice look like for AI algorithms? They were never taken into account in terms of data they, that, that, that was used. But also it's not an easy question because it's not like you can just take the data to increase, you know, to reduce the bias so it knows what an Aboriginal flag looks like because maybe you're not supposed to take the images any, uh, uh, anyway. So I think just including the voices, uh, I think that's, that's super relevant now and it's always been. So including the voices of people in the design of the systems, in the design of techno technology, the design of governments, just including voices of people. And the other one is collective ownership. I think um, the, the biggest problem now is, you know, as I mentioned, the increase of inequality, due to automation, and the reason is because it's only a few people who will own the automation means, or the, the means of production. They will capture all the income. And there's other, all these other models that are being proposed where actually people who contributed to the data own the profits generated by the algorithm. So if I'm a programmer and I contributed code to the model that was trained to automate me, um, I deserve some, you know, even a small percentage of the income that that model is generated. 
So I think a model in which we all own the algorithms, like imagine if we, we all contributed to ChatGPT, like whether we know it or not. And it's, generate, it's gonna generate a billion dollars uh, this year, that's the annualized revenue of OpenAI now, just from ChatGPT. Imagine if we had a little, a little chunk. Maybe it's not gonna be a lot, but you know, if we're talking about universal basic income, you know, it's, it starts to add up. So I think a model in which it's collective ownership, collective participation would be the utopia, at least in the next 20 years. In the next 50 years, us connected to the AIs with like, you know, brain-computer interfaces and all that stuff. But uh, in, the, in the next 20 years, I think those two models are pretty executable. I do want to come back to the singularity at some point before we wrap. But uh, Teresa, one of the, th the notions that uh, inspired the panel was thinking about different sci-fi futures, uh, Star Trek, Terminator, Blade Runner. Uh, you've been interested in the, in, uh, the work of Ursula Le Guin and yep. uh, how her ideas might inform the conversation. Uh, where, how does that tap in? So it was actually Ursula Le Guin's Lathe of Heaven that inspired me to be thinking as an ethicist uh, even before I thought of using the name ethicist. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm finding lots of Ursula Le Guin fans as, as I've been here this week, but for anyone who's not familiar with the Lathe of Heaven, the, the basic storyline in that is that there is uh, an individual, the character in, in the story, who has the power to have what, um, dreams that are effective dreams. So when he wakes up, whatever he has dreamt becomes the reality. And he ends up in a situation where a psychologist is, is helping to cure him and decides this is an amazing tool that I can use to create a better world. So he tries to have him dream, for instance, um, to, to improve the weather. So, so it's, a, it's a future scenario that scarily looks like the current day. Um, and there's lots of rain, so he imagines, okay, let's, let's help the rain stop, but of course it creates drought. So then there's a dream where there's overpopulation. So how is overpopulation stopped? Well, we start a disease plague that kills off a lot of people. Um, another one is where there are, um, there's war in factions, the whole planet is fighting one another and he wants to bring world peace. So an alien invasion is what brings the world together. So, so the point here is that there is, you know, you might imagine that you want to improve something, but the interconnectivity of things makes it really difficult to control these things. So you can't control the outcome. And, and, and Le Guin's work is very much about uncertainty and these ideas of ambiguity, an ambiguous utopia. So, mm. so what, I, what, I, what I would bring to this, and, and, and I think Ursula connects, I really love the opportunity to think about uh, Le Guin's work again in connection to those sci-fi futures, because when I went back to think about Blade Runner versus Star Trek, um, versus Terminator, I was looking through the lens of the humans because Ursula's stories are, are very human-based. And thinking about um, in all of those stories, whatever, um, whether it was a dystopia or a utopia, um, the characters, the strength of the characters being called to action and, and working and ultimately finding some way to collectively, so, so work to solve the problem and move forward is what we see. And so I think what I take from Le Guin's work is that idea that, you know, again, appreciate that uncertainty is, is our reality. And uncertainty is actually a way to keep us creative and to keep us moving forward because if everything were certain, what would be the point? Um, but that we need some resilience and we need some capacity for reaching out, um, being human, and connecting at a human level with those around us to then deal with what's in front of us.
Tracy, one of the characteristics of your work is you talk about uh, the importance of ensuring that humans have a, a primacy in what we're, what we're doing, that we don't sort of fall to the, the, to the back of the stage and allow the uh, robots and the computers to take centre stage. How do you see human-centred design working really effectively? Yeah, do you know what? After you suggested this title for this conversation, I've been rethinking the complexity of that because... Obviously, we need to master the machines before they master us, right? That's, uh, that doesn't really need to be said. But re-watching Blade Runner got me thinking about the rights of replicants. And there's a lot of similarities there with Westworld. Uh, and also with Metropolis, which I loved. The most incredible, I suppose, description of the corporations up here and the underclass, the working class here. Yes. To Rodolfo's point before, what we're seeing at the moment is neo-colonialism with the capital sitting in Silicon Valley and the underpaid or unpaid workers in sub-Saharan Africa and the global south cleaning the data, working for next to nothing to create the kind of future that the elites will enjoy. So yes, while I do agree with human privacy, I don't like the way this future's heading. We need a more equitable future and we need to start talking now about what the rights of the replicants would be. I have an entire chapter on my book about sex robots because a lot of the female form sex robots that are being created are designed to be raped. If you press a button, it overrides consent. Now, I know they're masses of metal and wires, but they're made in the form of a human woman. And so what are the legal rights there? What are the implications? What does it mean for humans and how they'll treat other humans if they're allowed to rape robots? So yes, we do need to retain the power within humanity, certainly as we move forward, but more importantly, we need to reduce that gap. The ethicist Peter Singer has uh, written about the importance of understanding rights for non-human animals as well. And so when he is confronted with the question as to whether uh, an artificial intelligence that is smarter than us should have rights, he argues, yes, absolutely. And then when asked the question, how would you feel if that species came to outpopulate humans, Yes, he says, well, you'd have to be a speciesist to, uh, to, to see humanity as being somehow the pinnacle of uh, uh, what the planet could populate. Uh, I find this challenging. I, uh, I find myself having quite an affinity for humanity. Call me crazy. Uh, but, uh, but I'm not sure that I can mount a, a kind of pure utilitarian argument against where uh, Peter Singer is coming from. Uh, Rodolfo, how do you see the uh, evolution, particularly you talked before about uh, some of the futures, not just involving uh, computers versus humans, but about some of the, the meld between we kicked off talking about you know, ways in which we've used technology to augment our creative skills, but how do you see that going in the future in terms of the, the, the human-computer interface? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my research specifically focuses on human-AI-created collaboration and just collaboration more broadly. <coughs> so, well, first of all, you have to define what does it mean to collaborate with a machine. Uh, is it just using it as a tool, or does that count as collaboration? Uh, so kind of like the working definition uh, that I use is it's a relationship in which you have a loop, a feedback loop, and you can engage in a dialogue with the computer. So you can ask it to create something, and then it generates something, but then you can tweak that and then engage in the circle. So you both contribute in equal parts. So I think that is a very exciting future because that 
proposes that the AI is not going to replace a human, but it's just going to make existing humans more effective. Uh, so the, the VCG case that you, that, that you uh, mentioned before, I think it's a great case because it, it was like a leveler. Also, uh, an important uh, detail of that study is that the bottom performance of the firm, they increased 47% and then the top performance only increased like, like 13% or yes. something. Yeah. So it leveled them. So that's exciting uh, for humans, you know, if it can help people, uh, people who are just learning how to code. I've been able to code in different languages that I've never done. I've done like Python, but I've just been able to do other languages that I've never done. And that increased my creativity. So I was able to create an app that I have just this idea for this, this silly app, but I just could do it in one day. Uh, so I think that is very exciting, just helping humans increase uh, their, their own capabilities. But also you have to take into account, also in that study, for example, uh, they, they showed that they also tried a tasking which ChatGPT wasn't able to help on purpose and they performed 20% worse. So what happened is that they become, became more reliant on the tool. And so what, what does that mean for humans? If we became, become over-reliant on ChatGPT to write, then what's going to happen to a verbal fluency? So there's so many interesting questions there, but I think overall a future in which we collaborate with computers to make us more efficient, to level our skills, to make us more capable and increase our creativity so we can, you know, turn our ideas into reality quicker. So I love the uh, distinction that uh, Ethan and his co-authors draw between cyborgs and centaurs. Mm. Cyborgs are essentially outsourcing the task to a machine. A centaur is a human-machine meld, and, and the very best teams, uh, uh, this study argues, were those that combined the two. But I did have in the back of my head, how long is that going to last? <laughs> because a decade ago, uh, the very best uh, chess performers were those who were human teams using multiple chess playing algorithms. And that could be the best humans and the best computers. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case. Uh, the best chess computers now beat these so-called centaur teams. Uh, you get a better result in chess by just taking the humans out of the equation. Uh, it, it, Teresa, uh, I'm curious in terms of how the uh, ethics of this unfolds, and particularly uh, how you think about the meld between human and machine uh, from, uh, from an ethical and perhaps even a regulatory standpoint there. Thank you for that question. Uh, that could be a whole session on its own. I've been really fortunate to be able to work with indigenous technologists and an international community working in indigenous data sovereignty. And one of the things that I've learned from that community is, is that uh, a core principle in indigenous data governance is the notion of creating foundational capacity for a community to have control and agency over the, the way that data, or we can expand that to technology, is used to manage their own affairs. And I've been working with an international organization to take that principle to not just apply in indigenous context, but for us as humans. Uh, what it also alerts me to is it's not so much the ethics of a system, but ethics as the system. So that if we are focusing on, and I was thinking about that with, with your example and then also with centaurs um, versus cyborgs, you know, maybe in, in, in the near future, then those distinctions don't matter to us if we're focused on what our foundational capacity is. And that's a conversation, I suppose, at a global level, but also at the local level. 
So I'm going to be very 1970s and go global because I think, I think the way forward is to be thinking about, about how we as a planet <laughs> make sure that we stay a planet, so that idea of planetary flourishing as well as human flourishing. But really, in essence, in, and this comes back to something we were talking about before, how hard it is for people to feel that they have any control or any agency at all mm. because of what's happening. One way that you, I, I feel, um, have agency, and this comes back to local ethics and personal ethics and personal values, is to think about what I can do in my day-to-day -day practice, how I live, and how I can model that. We do that in the home, to think about doing that in the community, to do that on the street, to do that in the job, um, and then over time, and that is, you know, call me utopian, call me optimistic, but that is what I have control over. I do have control over how I act and what I stand for and what I speak for, and if everyone were to do just a little bit of that um, on a daily basis, that starts to model conversations that lead us to that appreciation of our foundational capacity, and that then means we're not speaking of ethics, but we are being ethical. Mm. Tracy, I'm struck by the way in which technology, these technologies can sometimes make really odd mistakes. Uh, so if you ask uh, for a set of academic citations to support an argument, uh, you will get from any of the large language models, whether you're talking about uh, uh, Llama or ChatGPT or any of the others, uh, complete garbage. You will get a name of a scholar in the field, some words that that scholar uses in the titles of their articles, and a journal in which this, the, these things are published. But the machines don't seem to understand that a citation is a thing, like a word. They just mesh together a whole lot, a whole lot of uh, uh, words and create something that is totally plausible and completely wrong. Uh, and this happens in Galore as well, leading one US lawyer to uh, put together a set of ChatGPT created pleadings. I'm going to have the judge say, I'm sorry, mate, none of these uh, cases exist. Um, so how do we, uh, uh, in what context should we worry about errors emerging and, and how is that going to be a sort of systematic challenge as we go forward with AI? Yes, what you just said reminded me of the AI app InspiraBot, which comes up with inspirational quotes, one of which is, to succeed, you must be dead. Yes. <laughs> now, when you think about that rationally, the robots obviously go, well, the most successful people, they're all dead, so that there must be a connection, right? Ergo, you must be dead. Look, the way we can get past this, aside from inclusive design, is to have supervised machine learning instead of unsupervised. I mean, remember Tay, Microsoft's catastrophe in 2016, the a millennial-minded chatbot that became an anti-feminist neo-Nazi within 24 hours of use. Humans need to have oversight, particularly when there's machine learning. So that's one way. But to your point earlier, which I thought was excellent, you know, we live in the, the age of the individual and we forget that adage, think global, act local. The greatest progressive changes have happened through grassroots movements of people joining together. I'm thinking now of the woman life freedom movement in Iran at the moment, which is absolutely phenomenal. But we also have to learn the lessons of the past. Um, the very first computer coders on earth are Australia's First Nations women. 
through the medium of weaving, which is a binary code like computer coding, like knitting, knit one, purl two. And we forget that. We forget that in the 1950s there were more women in computing than there were men. We forget people like Ada Lovelace, the world's first computer programmer. So we need to learn the lessons of the past. We're living in the fourth industrial revolution. In the first industrial revolution, when the printing press came out, Everyone was running around like chooks with their heads cut off going, books, there's going to be so many books, it'll be the end of humanity, there'll be no productivity, people will just be reading books. <laughs> and then when the wireless radio came out in 1927, everyone said it'll be the end of family life, no one will sit around the dinner table, they won't talk anymore, they'll just listen to radio soaps. In each of those revolutions, there were societal concerns, but society pushed back and put humanism first and got past those challenges. And I'm optimistic that thinking about it through a humanist lens and having supervision of these changes will bring us to a future that, while not ideal, is certainly not dystopia. Final observations from everyone. So I'd like to, to get each of the panel to, uh, to, to give me your crisp thoughts on where we're most likely to end up uh, and how we avoid the dystopian scenarios. And particularly, if you've got ideas for things that people in the room can do uh, as citizens in order to move us closer towards a future of Star Trek uh, and away from a future of Terminator. Rodolfo, first. Well, this is really hard. <laughs> Where are we more likely to end up? I would say I'm, I'm uncertain about that. Uh, maybe I can propose two short ones uh, to just get out of the, of the trouble. But um, I think one of them is um, we all will be more capable, more creative, more intelligent, as you could say. We will have our capacities extended. I already feel that way. And of like, I, I'm just a power user of, of, of ChatGPT and AI in general. And I already be, feel more productive, at times frustrated when he makes his errors. But for my PhD, I've used it as well mm -hmm. to like, hey, correct me, give me some feedback for this. English is my first language, so it's really helpful as well. For coding, it's really powerful. So I already feel like augmented and I feel more productive and I've been able to do more things. Um, so that's one. But there are other trends which I find a little bit sketchy, which is uh, the metaverse, mm -hmm. uh, Neuralink, and the convergence between AI and all those things seems a little bit scary, particularly if it's within a profit-based model. So I think, for example, there's this guy, Manuel Cerulean, he talks about the fact that the Matrix machines in the movie, they're probably social media algorithms gone wrong. They, they use AI, so you know they were tasked with maximizing attention, so they said, oh, let's just create a virtual world in which we have 24 hours of their attention. Um, so I think that's plausible. I think, uh, you know, um, we have you know these headsets that are amazing. You know the Apple, the <coughs> Apple headset, the Apple Vision Pro. That you know there's already reading brain activity. Uh, not this version, but the research that they're doing probably in the next version is gonna already read your brain activities, your alpha waves, etc., to know your level of, of excitement and so on. Potentially, we're gonna have Neuralink chips in our brains, which are gonna be able to detect our dopamine levels, etc. And then you have generative AI, so the headset is gonna make a world just for you based on your dopamine spikes and so on. And if that's controlled by Meta, I don't know if I wanna like live in that future. Uh, so that is, I think that's very likely, you know, if you kind of just like extrapolate from, from where we are now, where the profit is, 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 is uh, pointing towards. Maybe those two futures can coexist, um, but I think both are likely, uh, yeah. Fantastic, Teresa. 
I think I'm, I'm worried about the, what I was saying before about the outsourcing that's going on, that we're outsourcing to machines because it is so easy to get seduced by them. Um, something as simple as I, I love standing behind people when an escalator, an up escalator isn't working and they'll stop for a moment like, like does not compute, what do I do? You know, this isn't working. Um, and it reminds me of that scene in WALL-E yeah. where you know, up in space, people have forgotten how to walk and move because everything's just so easy. And, and so I, you know, I have that in my head. We, we have to be mindful of that. So be able to use these tools, but then also still have that sense of, of awareness that you know, what it means to be human. So, so I think the, the, the future, and then thinking, going back to, to the ideal utopian scenarios in the, in the different sci-fi examples that are part of our title, when I think about what works in Star Trek, uh, you know, they're hurling through space. So let's think of, of um, the Starship Enterprise's planet Earth. We're hurling through space. And the only way that all these people can succeed in, in staying alive is by working together and by trusting one another and their devices. So building that trust culture to me is really important because trust buys us time. So when, when we trust in our machines, then we're not having to code it every single time. Um, you know, I trust that the car won't explode when I get into it, so that saves me some time and some life. When, um, when as a community we can trust, then we allow for failure a little more than when there is distrust. And so globally, there's this trust deficit that really worries me. What we can do I think as we walk out of this room, I think every single one of us can keep our eyes and ears open for ways to be more inclusive and ways to seek individually and collectively to break cycles of disadvantage. Mm. Because when we start to do that, we are starting to find the ways to support that foundational capacity for us as humans to have a say in our future. And then the machines can do what the machines do well, and we as humans will be resilient, marvelous, uncertainty engaging creatures going through space. Thank you. Final, final word, Tracy. I'm also going to refer to Star Trek. And if you haven't watched it for a while, I'd love you to rewatch the first series because it's got the wonderful Lieutenant Uhura, played by Nichelle Nichols. And because of her role modelling and her work with NASA, that led to the first black woman going to space, Dr Mae Jemison. And that reminded me of the whole idea that you can't be what you can't see. We need more diverse role models in artificial intelligence, full stop. So that's my first point. Second one is what we can all do at home. Change the voices of your chatbots. Uh, as civil society, we have power, but we also have power as consumers. Put your money where your mouth is. If you don't like the toxic workplace cultures in some of these companies, I'm thinking of Uber, then catch a Shiva or a taxi instead. Support companies run by Indigenous people, by women, by people in marginalised communities. And the third brief point I'd like to make is because I'm a journalist, I interviewed distinguished professor Genevieve Bell for my book, and she has the most wonderful quote, which I'm probably gonna get wrong. But the, the thrust of it is that we owe it to ourselves to view a future that is optimistic, but we also owe it to ourselves to disrupt the present to make that future possible. 
With that wonderful observation to, uh, to conclude the panel, uh, let me thank once more Rodolfo Ocampo, uh, Teresa Anderson, and Tracy Spicer. Tracy will be signing copies of her book, Man Made. Uh, don't forget, uh, Christmas is not far away, so perhaps you don't just want to get one, you want to get a dozen, so you can hand them out to the panel. Uh, thank you all of you for your interest in artificial intelligence. Uh, we need an enriched public conversation on these issues. Uh, Australia is uh, not the site of the generative AI engines, and in that sense, maybe has an outside potential to play a role not just in the national debates, but in the international debates. Uh, so there's an awful lot to be done in this. And don't forget to have fun with their technologies. I deliberately kicked off with some of the applications that people are using it for, whether it's celebrating a 60th, uh, ex exciting the opera house, or writing haiku poems. Uh, we can all have a lot more fun with artificial intelligence. Thank you very much.